Did you know a turkey puppet once ran for the presidency of Ireland? Did you know that meat once rained from the skies of Kentucky? Did you know that there was an emperor of the United States for a while? Then listen to the Wiki Ship Down podcast. We live in an age when the sum total of humanity's knowledge can be found in your pocket on a smartphone at any given time. But when that knowledge is peer editable, like it is on Wikipedia, what does that say about mankind? So follow us down the digital rabbit hole as we drink, joke, and curse our way through the random button on Wikipedia and see where our journey through humanity's knowledge takes us. While you're at it, follow us on all social media at Wikiship Down. I'm Ruthann. I'm Ryan. And be sure to find us every Wednesday on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Cool. All right, bro. We are rolling. What? Counting us down. Three, two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hey, Outcast, Lex here. So if you haven't been living under a rock, maybe even if you have, it's a big deal. You probably They, they probably tell you about it under rocks, I suppose. Avengers Infinity War is hitting cinemas globally uh, the weekend that we are recording this episode. So Tari and I got together and we said, why don't we do a big, ambitious uh, uh, Road to Infinity War project episode for y'all? We, we're going to talk about the whole whole shebang, uh, phase one, phase two, phase three, leading up to Avengers Infinity War. In our great hubris, we did not consider the length of such a conversation, the the volume of talking that there is to be done. So what we ended up doing was we, we split this massive conversation into two episodes, all right? So the first episode is going to cover phase one through phase two. That's going to be everything from Iron Man up through Ant-Man, and then come back for the second half of that conversation in our next episode, which is going to cover all of phase three from Captain America Civil War up through and including Avengers Infinity War. So for all our thoughts on that, check out the next episode. But for our thoughts on the MCU as a whole, you're definitely going to want to check out both parts because, oh goodness gracious gravy, there's a whole bunch to talk about. So hang in there, check out part one, which is about to about to hit your ears right now, and come back in the next episode of part two, man, where we talk about phase three and Avengers Infinity War. All right, take it away past Tari and Lex. Hey guys, welcome back to Missing Out. I'm Tari J. I'm Lex Michael. Um, if this is your first time listening, we talk about different media, whether it be movies, TV shows, music, spoken word, uh, all the things that helped build us as people, and we share it with each other, and we share it with you, the audience, and we hope that it helps build you. We uh, are... I, I gotta say, I don't mean to cut you off, but the uh, retrospective you're describing sounds pretty dang introspective. It's the most introspective. Uh, thanks, Kanye. <laughs> what? You just, you're like, nah, I'm gonna let you finish, but whatever. That's what Kanye does, right? And also endorses the president. <laughs> right. That's Those are his two things. Yep. Interrupting people by endorsing the president. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, topical. Uh, today we're, uh, oh, I should do all the, the housekeeping stuff. I suppose. Um, better, better to do it now. Better to do it now so we don't sit down on the couch and like hurt ourselves sitting on objects that we left carelessly strewn about. It's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, gotta, gotta, gotta keep it clean. And the only way to do so is, uh, by following us on Twitter at Missing Outcast. That's M-I-S-S-I-N-G-O-U-T-C-A-S-T. It really and, is the equivalent of scrubbing like a disease out of your walls. It's true. Yeah. Uh, and 
once you do that, you'll know what we're covering from week to week, and you'll be able to keep track of us on our many platforms. What platforms are we on, you ask? I was about to. Yeah, I can hear you with my mind. Um, yeah, it's unsettling. It's get, get, really uncomfortable. <laughs> There's so many. There are so many layers of discomfort involved in what you just described. Uh, and I feel all of them. It's like a warm blanket covering my whole body. Warm, so layered. Really awkward, off-putting blanket. <laughs> um, but we are on uh, Apple TV, Apple iTunes. We're not, we're not on the TV yet? I mean, you could. I think you can stream uh, different podcasts through your Apple TV. So if you basically, if you just think about what you think we look like based on our voices and get a piece of white paper and yeah. some crayons right. and draw uh, your best likeness of what you think we look like and tape it to your TV screen yeah. and then stream uh, one of our shows on Apple TV and it'll be like you're watching us uh, in prime time on television. Hell yeah. Uh and you could also, but let's say you don't have an Apple TV. You could also you go on Google Play Store, um, Stitcher, also on Anchor. Uh, but also feel free to draw pictures of us uh, then as well. Yeah, totally. Especially if you're like listening to us in the car. Why don't you put like little pictures of us on your windshield like we're like we're on the front of your car like holding on like yeah we're, like in a high-speed chase we're right just, like grabbing on for dear life mm-hmm. like someone's shooting at us hell yeah so you gotta basically cover your whole windshield to get the full effect and you can draw like helicopters in the background and stuff like that are shooting at us right well uh, i would i would i would just do like maybe the 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 sides you know like we're hanging off the side just because i don't want anyone to get into a car accident no 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 no, no, no. whole thing whole thing right and then that oh, way okay. that way you have to take your while you're driving you keep your hands attended to you have to take your whole head and shoulders and stick them out the window like you're in an action movie yeah and your your windshield's cracked from bullets hitting it. right of course so it's like we're on the front and then whoever's driving has to like go out the side and you got to be like you know maybe you're armed you gotta be like shooting people out the right. side while of you're course. trying to drive it's yeah, a big, yeah like it's a big uh i'm picturing like um like an escalade you know what i mean yeah like doing yeah. all this totally but yeah it, that's you got if you're gonna do it, you might as well like commit to the no, full. Yeah, you to gotta, the full you gotta do it up. So yeah, yeah, yeah whole yeah. whole windshield, and it's not just the like us uh, like as decals, and then uh-huh. the rest of your windshield is still the windshield. You you really do got to cover the whole thing yeah. to create the panorama to create the whole the whole scene. Got it. Yeah, totally, totally. Missing out does not condone the uh, uh, the opinion of Lex Michael. Uh, if you get in a car crash, please do not sue us because we have no money. And also, uh, we are a construct and we don't really exist. And so you can't get any money from us as well. But also, we value your safety and want to make sure that you get home safely. So uh, make sure that you don't do anything that was just a suggestion. Uh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Lex, totally, totally, totally. Uh, what I really want to do, do that. What I really want to do now is I want to buy you a T-shirt. It just looks like a white t-shirt and you just you just don't turn it around and look at the back and you wear it and the back just as big letters says I am liable <laughs> and you, just, you just walk around wearing it and everybody's kind of looking at you funny when they when they like uh they're walking up behind you and they pass you they turn and they look at you like huh? and you're like what what what's going on <laughs> and then all of a sudden you get a lot of court summons Ooh, yeah, a lot of them. Just a series of them show up at once, or like one one person shows up with like a stack of eighteen subpoenas for you. Oh, it's a lot of subpoenas. Yeah. Um, is it for all of my different aliases as well? Yeah. Yeah. Tari J, Borpy T, Thaddeus D. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Thaddeus D. That's you, right? Um, uh, Smanarchy. 
Um, uh, all of Don, them. Don Jiggle. Mm, ooh, you don't even want to know about Don Jiggle. Um, <laughs> Nobody ever wants to know <laughs> about Don Jiggle. Anyway, yes. uh, what 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 in uh, goodness gracious gravy are we are we doing here today? Uh, today we are going to be talking about the MCU. We've been uh, subjected, not subjected, because that seems like it's mean. Um, we've been. I able really, to... I guess it's a matter of perspective. It depends on your like what your mileage is on these things. Well, I, I guess so. Um, I mean, we have had the, for me, we've had the, the privilege of living in a, in a world that has been able to sustain a long running connected universe for 10 years, starting in, in 2008 as a kind of an experiment with John Favreau and, uh, Robert Downey Jr. And it has ultimately led to, uh, a... 20 some odd star studded uh g- giant like i don't even know how to describe I, the I like say, magnitude well, of well, people Infinity are, War. people are we see it getting memed a lot now uh uh but people are basically you know they're they're positioning it as like this is the biggest most ambitious crossover event in the history of entertainment um and i think i think they have a pretty strong argument yeah. For that, uh, quite possibly. But also, too, you talk about the shared universe model, right? Like, in in the 19, I want to say the 40s, Universal with their monsters would occasionally try and throw them together. You had a lot of, like, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman or, like, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. It has a bunch of the Universal monsters in it. But not since then had they... And there was no very loose continuity, if any. Yeah. There was a little bit of continuity. I mean, obviously, Frankenstein to Bride of Frankenstein little tiny bit of continuity between Bride of Frankenstein and Son of Frankenstein and then any movie in which Lon Chaney plays uh, Larry Talbot, the Wolfman, uh, Lon Chaney Jr. It seems like he is essentially the same version of that character going through all of them. Yeah. But not a, a story or continuity-heavy shared universe. It's just an excuse to kind of throw our monster mascots together uh, occasionally in different combinations. Yeah. But not really since then. Uh, but also, so the 1940s monster shared universe was certainly nowhere near this massive and sprawling as well. But but since then, no real big focused, certainly successful attempts to launch a shared universe on screen, right? And we yeah. we as as like nerdy comic book people, like were you a comic book person growing up? A bit, yes. Okay, so I, I don't know about you, but like I, I was. Like I, I very much was. And then I fell out of it for a handful of years. And then I want to say probably like 10 years ago now, I got back into comics. And mm-hmm. I've been into it and, and keeping up with it pretty consistently since then. Um, but we we lived in a world for, for much of my childhood and yours where if you saw these characters in the comics and you loved these characters, these worlds, these relationships, these stories... You, you got used to the idea that you weren't ever going to get to see them realized on screen in a way that that resembled the source material in the slightest. Right. And then in in the late 90s, early 2000s, we started, it started with Blade, and Blade was pretty cool, pretty well received. Then we got uh, Brian Singer's X-Men movies, which really not that much like the source material, but really started to, I think, legitimize the idea of comic book movies as source materials for movies that could be... If not, if not, were hyper serious themselves, were at least taken a bit more seriously than they had been. Yeah. And then, of course, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies blew those doors open even further. And then, of course, Christopher Nolan's Batman movies, and of course, uh, The Dark Knight and Iron Man came out in the same year, which was basically that. I mean, that was the year. That was the year I think where everything 
began to shift as far as uh, what comic book movies could be. Again, like The Dark Knight, I think, kicked everything up several notches as far as quote-unquote legitimacy. Right. And in the same year, Iron Man launched the Marvel Cinematic Universe and transformed comic book storytelling on screen as we as we know it. And, and we didn't quite know that it was going to do that at the time. I don't yeah. think we, we quite had confirmation of it until Avengers came out four years later. And it's like, okay, well, guess, I guess they did it. I guess that worked. Yeah. But even before that, right? Like I remember there's a moment in, uh, in Spider-Man two, right? Sam Raimi, Spider-Man two, where, uh, in which Alfred Molina plays, uh, Dr. Octopus is the, the primary villain in the movie. And there's a scene in the daily bugle office where, uh, uh, J Jonah Jameson is talking to Ted Raimi's character, character name I, I forget at the moment but uh yeah. they're spitballing like what do we call this guy what do we call this villain in the in the paper because i think in the first movie as well like the daily bugle and, and jameson gave green goblin the name green goblin in the yeah place. so they're spitballing and at first uh, uh ted Raimi's character throws out dr octopus and jameson like waves it off it's like i don't know stupid and then of course he circles back to that idea later takes credit for it but while they're spitballing one of the names that ted Raimi throws out he's like ah uh Doctor Strange and Jameson goes, ah, that's good, but it's taken. And they keep going. And it's like you watch you watching this movie, right? And if you're sitting in the audience and like you're you're so hungry for little bits of connective tissue to the greater universe yeah. that you know you're not gonna see. You just wanna know that it's out there. That moment was such it was like a, a beautiful little bit of candy in this scene because you you hear it and it's like, oh my god, it's taken. That means Holy shit! That means Doctor Strange is maybe out there in this world, some somewhere, somehow. Like the Sanctum Sanctorum is something that like Tobey Maguire could possibly swing past. He won't, but he could. Yeah. How amazing is that? It sucks that this is the closest we're ever gonna get to seeing Spider-Man and Doctor Strange cohabitate in a movie together. But we'll take it because it's what we have. Cut to what? However many years later, and. We don't we don't got to work that hard to find those little morsels anymore, man. Like that's oh yeah, that's that's our like shared currency now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like the the closest we had gotten before the like Downyverse, um, Downyverse. is I mean they they did it on a smaller scale in terms of like a lot of the animated shows. So you got uh, X Men the animated series, which eventually crossed over with Spider Man the animated series. Which eventually brought in characters like um, Blade and uh, like Deadpool, and you got uh, oh, also they had the Fantastic Four animated series, which also crossed over with all of those. So like in, in on a much smaller scale, where you get like an episode of two where these characters interact, um, they were kind of playing around with it, but it was a lot easier because it was animation and they could just go cool can we do this because we're uh we have the rights and they're like totally whatever who cares we just draw it and so you mentioned the rights and so this is something i guess just for a little bit of context like what why iron man like why was why was uh 2008 the moment to release an iron man movie why was iron man the character that they were going to use as an anchor to launch this massive shared universe experiment Big part of the answer to that question has to do with what rights they had to which characters at what time. Now, if you're a hardcore nerd about this stuff, you you know this stuff already. So bear with me for a second. If you're a, if you're a bit more of a casual fan, if you're not like, and I know this might be a little bit insidey, but I think it's actually important for context. Yeah. Uh, in the '90s, 
Marvel was uh, just about bankrupt, which now seems like such a crazy idea. But Marvel was was pretty much bankrupt. They were really, really, really hurting. And so to stabilize themselves financially as best they could, they started selling off the movie rights to a lot of their prominent characters. Mm -hmm. That is why Spider-Man ended up at Sony and why it wasn't until very recently that Marvel Studios got to play with that character again and only through partnering with Sony, not getting the character back wholesale. Uh, then, of course, uh, the X-Men and the Fantastic Four were sold off to Fox, where they still remain. Now, the this deal, the Disney-Fox deal, may go through within the next year, and they may end up with Marvel Studios, but as of now, still remain at Fox, as did characters for a long time like Ghost Rider and Daredevil. But I know at a certain point, the Daredevil rights lapsed back to Marvel. Now we have all the Netflix stuff. Right. Uh, point being, they couldn't play with some of their biggest mascots because in the 90s right like it was for a lot of people it was like spider-man and wolverine Mm -hmm. can't touch either spider-man or wolverine who do we have it's so bizarre to consider now that at the time iron man thor even captain america were largely considered second tier characters at best right these were the kids like okay these yes they are the original lineup of the avengers for the most part but largely considered definitely secondary to say like again like spider-man and wolverine but these are the characters that they had the rights to so these are the characters like okay we got to figure out how to make it work with these characters and i'm mm-hmm. not 100 percent on why iron man was the one that they decided to start with other than i feel like of the three of the four including hulk uh we tried a hulk movie before the reception to it was a little bit and eh, the i believe it was oh three on lee's version yes um very mixed response so maybe i i can understand wanting to not lead with another hulk maybe like dip your toe in in a different section of the pool first before we offer another hulk movie to people yeah and of the remaining three i would say iron man is probably a bit of an easier buy than thor or captain america if you're not totally sure how an audience is going to take to the com- comic bookiest comic book movies yeah that we've ever seen so it makes a certain amount of sense to me to start with Iron Man, and when you read about the production of Iron Man, it's so it's so bonkers, especially in the context of where we are now, because Iron Man went into production without a finished script. A lot of what you see in the movie was stuff that they discovered while they were making it through, essentially through character-based improvisation, mm-hmm. which is which is bonkers to me. Oh, yeah. Then you also have to consider, too, where Downey was in, in his life and his career, because, of course, now Downey is Iron Man. Downey's been Iron Man for 10 years. Uh, he's one of the biggest stars on the planet. He's one of the biggest stars that there has ever been at any point. Uh, but it, that was not the case at the time. He he was still very much rehabilitating his image. Yeah. Following, you know, I mean, you g- Wikipedia Robert Downey Jr. and just like <laughs> just like read about Robert Downey Jr. in the eighties yeah. and nineties. Like we he had don't a hard need to, life. We don't need to cover it here. Like yeah, we you, you can read about all this stuff. But he was he was you know getting himself cleaned up he was putting his career back together he was clean and sober he was working hard um and he needed he needed a big opportunity if he was ever going to i think solidly reestablish himself he had made uh just just prior to uh iron man he did a movie with shane black called kiss kiss bang bang i don't know if you've seen it i haven't phenomenal movie written and directed by shane black who would later reteam with downey for iron man 3 hmm. uh the dna of kiss kiss bang bang is all 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 over that movie. I encourage you to watch Kiss Kiss Bang Bang no matter what because it rules, but it's a fun, if you're into the Marvel stuff, very fun double feature with Iron Man 3 because it 
Iron Man 3 is very, it's a Shane Black movie top to bottom. Right. Um, and a lot of like direct nods to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. But that was also, it's it, that movie's credited with helping secure the Iron Man gig for Downey. But mm-hmm. even that wasn't enough. Uh, the, the story goes, the legend has it that the studio was so put off by the idea of hiring Downey given his his history of public shenanigans and behavior yeah they refused to insure him and so Favreau had to insure Downey personally because Favreau was so convinced that this is the guy yeah nobody else could do and of course I mean like he's he's uh clearly clearly was a smart man <laughs> well yeah I mean Favreau came out well, he won he refused to move forward with the movie without him um but also he he came out uh, I'd say the best out of anyone in that, like, he gets an EP credit on everything in the MCU. He gets, not on everything, but he gets uh, everything with, I believe, all the Avengers movies, certainly. Yes. Uh, I know he's I know he's EP on the first Avengers movie. I know he's EP on Infinity War. I believe he's, I'd have to double check Ultron, but I, probably. I think so, yes. Because um, I was looking it up earlier this week, what he gets EP credits on, and it's definitely... Every it's almost it's basically anything that has Downey Jr. in it has a Favreau credit. Really? Yeah. Well, he's definitely got a credit on. No, but like he like the producer. Well, producer yeah, credit. Right. I was yeah. gonna say because like his name's in the credits for just about everything with Downey in it because yes. he's because he's uh, in them because he's happy. Yes, right, I know but that's that. not what you mean. But that's not you don't what mean I mean. He has a credit. You mean he has a specific credit? Yes, that is exactly yes. Don't don't make me clarify myself. <laughs> Everyone gets it, guys. I, my words speak for themselves. Oh, no, that's not how words work. <laughs> it totally is. Um, but yeah, I mean, it essentially started with Favreau being like, all right, let's, let's get Downey in here. Let's, let's make this happen. And then like, we had a couple missteps, like leading to Avengers and that like, the second Hulk, the Incredible Hulk, because the first one was first the, one, yeah, first one was, was just, just Hulk. The Hulk, right? I don't think it was even the Hulk. I think it was just Hulk, right? The weird thing about Incredible Hulk. Oh, also, real quick before we before we leave Iron Man, because I feel like yeah, we got a lot of these to talk through, so we gotta we gotta kind of move at a clip. But yeah, two two things before we leave Iron Man. One, uh, you can't give too much credit to Favreau and that team for what they did laying the groundwork for this universe. Elements, things that we all so take for granted now, like even just a a, a Tony Stark's heads-up display when he's in the suit. What an absolutely genius device that is. Mm -hmm. And how it keeps Downey, even when he is in the complete CG robot suit, it keeps Downey a constant presence. You actually feel like Tony Stark is interacting with everybody even though they they have him sitting like a massage chair uh, against a green screen (laughs) at a totally separate time and location from everybody else to record all that stuff it still makes it feel like yeah you're still in this with tony stark tony stark is still very much a presence you're in the suit with him Mm -hmm. and we so we're so used to seeing that device now that i don't think we really think about it that is a brilliant 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 device that has been employed now in every i believe every single movie that tony stark has appeared in with yeah. the possible i don't know if we're ever in the suit with him in uh spider-man homecoming but with the possible exception of that one like he's in the suit i don't know that we actually see the heads-up display um but anyway so like just stuff like that like that device is brilliant the fact that it pulls so heavily from uh uh the warren ellis and ari gradnov extremis storyline which we then continue to pull from in iron man 3 but yeah. so the version of uh 
the origin where it's uh, now updated to Afghanistan from Vietnam, the design of the Mark I suit, uh, all of the, a lot of the imagery from the fight at the end with Ironmonger, a lot of that comes right out of the art from that book. Check that book out for the art alone even because it's one of the most gorgeous things you'll ever see. Tony Stark looks a little bit like Tom Cruise, which is kind of weird. Um, As but, he yeah. should. But, but, uh, but check that out. But of course, like... I, at this point, you've seen Iron Man. Y- y'all, y'all probably, if you're listening to this, if you care about these movies at all, you've definitely seen Iron Man more than once. Um, but before before we move on, I guess just because we're we're moving through Phase One now, it's it's impossible to overstate how if you grew up with these stories, how like ex- exciting, but exciting doesn't even it, it seems like it doesn't even come close. That that tag on the end of Iron Man, where Nick Fury, Sam Jackson as Nick Fury, as drawn in the Ultimate comics mm-hmm. uh appears in tony stark's house and says he's there to talk to him about the avenger initiative it is impossible to overstate how like pants shittingly exciting that was at the time because we didn't i think if you had been following the press surrounding iron man you might have heard that the intention was to possibly build to a bigger shared thing but if you hadn't or if you had somehow missed it you had no you had no clue something like this could possibly be in the pipeline. Right. And then Nick Fury shows up and says, all right, we're, this is our mission statement now. Like this, we, we're confident that Iron Man works. We, we hope it, we hope it makes a bunch of money, but we're confident this works enough that we're now telling you after the credits, we're basically laying out a mission statement for you, which is yes, you're going to get these additional uh, movies featuring other heroes. And we're building towards a, team up Avengers movie which which was essentially again like even though there was a shared universe thing with the Universal Monsters back in the 40s in terms of building into like building story and continuity into a a climactic culmination of stories that started in you know uh, four or five separate movies on that scale never never been done before now and now of course it almost seems quaint but at that point like again it is so hard to overstate how exhilarating it was knowing something like that could be coming um just that moment uh alone just because i was familiar with shield mostly from the animated universe where you got like episodes from spider-man where nick fury came and he was like we're looking for the chameleon and and things of that sort so just the having that moment of Tony Stark interacting with a dude from S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, to me was really cool. And also not just a dude from S.H.I.E.L.D., Nick Fury. Right. The head of S.H.I.E.L.D. Like, and and going back through comic book history, I mean, like, I believe I believe before they, they got attached to Cap, I believe the Howling Commandos were Nick Fury's as well. But Nick Fury, long story history in the comics, he's been a lot. Nick Fury's been alive. Like, OG Nick Fury's been alive at least since World War II. Yeah. Um, but also OG Nick Fury is a white man. Super white man. There's actually a TV movie, I want to say in the late, very late 80s, possibly very early 90s, called Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., starring David Hasselhoff as right. Nick Fury. Uh, wasn't until uh, the, the the Ultimate Universe, like the Marvel Ultimate Universe uh, in the comics, that uh, Nick Fury became black. They drew him as black, but they didn't just draw him as a black man. They drew him very, very specifically as Samuel L. Jackson. Well, of course. And so what a beautiful, beautiful thing it is, a beautiful, magical thing that when they approach Sam Jackson about like, hey, so you might have caught that we drew this character in the comics uh, with your face and uh, maybe you'd be interested in coming and being your face. (laughs) 
and like it's great for all of us that he said yeah hell yeah i'll go be my face in this movie yeah because he's still his face in these movies yeah well i mean he if i remember my sam jackson life timeline correctly like he had always been a pretty big comics fan and even to this day um he is he's still reading comics like religiously so i imagine for him uh the only thing that would have kept him from being Nick Fury is if he was doing a bit and was like, let's see who you get to play me, motherfucker. Like, other than that, David I Hasselhoff. <laughs> well, but like, yes. Which means, one... which means we probably don't get the David Hasselhoff jokes in Guardians Volume 2 if that's the case. So we'd have to sub in some. It'd be like, um, I don't know, like be uh, Kevin Don, Bacon. Don Johnson or somebody. Right. Yeah. Or yeah, it might be Kevin Bacon. A hundred percent be Kevin Bacon. But I feel like we used we we hit the Kevin Bacon drum in the first movie for jokes, and and I feel like we can't hit. We need another eighty celebrity for him to pretend to be his dad. There are it's no not other eighty celebrities. It's really just Hasselhoff and it's Kevin or Bacon. Or Vincent Price. It's Vincent Price. He's just like I love Vincent it's Price. A very different movie. Totally out of character, and yet I I, I accept it. Please accept it. Um, but <laughs> instead of listening to music, Quill just listens to old recordings of Vincent Price laughing. <laughs> like, ah, 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 ah. And everybody, like, and, and Peter Quill, like, lip syncs to the, the laughter. And all of the other Guardians, every time he does it, just kind of hang out in the back of the ship, just all staring at him, looking real scared. Yeah. Anyway. All right. So we're going to, we're going to get we're back through in 08. We're back in 08. Phase. Back in 08. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I, I had mentioned we had a couple missteps before we got to the end of phase one where um, the Incredible Hulk uh, was not 100% well received. Incredible Hulk's um, a weird animal because it also, it's, I think I think it was originally intended possibly to be a little bit more of another origin story for Hulk. And I think Ed Norton, who played Bruce Banner in that movie, really didn't want anything to do with another origin story. Right. So he pretty infamously took over scripting during production yeah. and rewrote large chunks of that script. A lot of the behind the scenes battles they had were eventually what led to him being replaced with Ruffalo as Banner, which no disrespect to Norton. Mark Ruffalo is Bruce Banner. I actually, I thought I heard at one point that they wanted Ruffalo initially for this Hulk movie and it didn't work out for some reason. Mm. Lot, there's a lot of interesting stuff in it. And I think it, it works decently as a monster movie. Yeah. Um, a lot of it really doesn't work. A lot of the interesting ideas don't hold together all that well. Uh, a real big problem is that even though it was only, what, four years before Avengers, we still weren't there with mocap. Yeah. So when Banner turns into Hulk, Banner is just gone completely. So it feels like there's nothing connecting Banner and Hulk in this movie. Same thing. Like, it's great to see Tim Roth doing big, fun, goofy stuff. But once once Blonsky becomes full abomination. Yeah you lose that actor completely as well. Um, so it's like the last fight between the two of them in Harlem, these big monsters just wailing on each other. It's fun, but it feels so disconnected from everybody else yeah. and everything else that it's like, you know, big shrug. But you get the most handsome Hulk you've ever seen. He does. He's got that nice hair. Yeah. You know what he's, I mean? he's got that like, yeah, he like he's, he's pretty good. What is, he's looking. got like the fallout boy hair. Yeah. 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 That's what it is. Um, which is, is great. I mean, I think that's the best thing to come out of that movie. I guess also is that is that's not our first interaction with Romanoff. She comes in. No, that's Iron Man two. two. Yeah, we yeah. do get a weird scene that makes no real sense at the very end of the movie, where Tony Stark shows up and approaches uh, 
Thunderbolt Ross, uh, William Hurt, who does is like the one element of Incredible Hulk that continues to play into this series of movies. Right. Um, they they retcon this with a with a Marvel one shot called The Consultant. I think it's on the disc for Thor. But Tony in the movie goes to see Ross, I guess, presumably to recruit Hulk to the Avengers. Yeah. When you see Iron Man 2, it retroactively makes that scene make absolutely no sense. So they they retcon it with this short where essentially it's very convoluted, uh, where essentially the World Security Council wants to put abomination on the team. And Coulson's like the Coulson and Fury are basically that's a terrible, terrible idea. We need to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah. So he and Sitwell, Coulson and Sitwell are sitting in a diner and they're talking about like, how do what do we do? Like, maybe if we send like a patsy somebody who will just piss off Ross so much that it'll just tank this entire deal. And then they have a moment of silence and they look at each other and like the consultant and they send Tony. And I guess what Tony does is he pisses off Ross so much that Ross is like, well, you can't have the abomination. And then <laughs> Coulson's like, Whew. uh, but yeah, it's, Weird. it's, yeah, it's a, it's a lot. It's a lot of stuff. It's okay. I tend to, I tend to skip Hulk now if I go back and rewatch him. I mean, that's, that's fine. There's nothing, there's nothing in it that super ties the whole I mean unless maybe you're like all right here's the the here's the most important piece that you can take from Hulk um but I at will some s- okay. at some point um Tony is like yo I need another voice for some of my other AIs and then he's like yo Ross get your daughter to do it for me she ain't doing shit and then he's like all right, that's cool. You done save the the earth a bunch of times. And then that's how we get Ross's daughter's voice in Spider-Man's suit. Oh, weird. Okay. Yeah, you're right. But that's a different, different Ross's daughter and different daughter. That's the Ross from uh, Ang Lee Hulk. That's the Sam Elliott. Same same one. It is technically the same same one. They are playing the same character, right? Because, okay, so Sam Elliott is Thunderbolt Ross in the Ang Lee Hulk and uh, Jennifer Connelly is uh betty yeah and jennifer connelly is also the voice of karen yes the spider-man suit ai she's also married to paul bettany who's the voice of jarvis so that's cute they get to both be ai people hell yeah um but yes but Liv tyler betty ross in this one which is why i was very confused no for for the the, all of the three seconds i was confused (laughs) um but yeah so there's some interesting stuff in hulk i do like the idea that uh hulk was a result of of Banner and other scientists trying to replicate the super soldier serum that created Captain America. That's a cool idea. Again, we don't take it too much further than that. So it's cool, but yeah. Um, And then you mentioned, so, so we have that. And then the, the second misstep being Iron Man two, which which, I was going to say has a lot of really great stuff in it. And it just does not, cohere all that well right i think it you you were talking about how the first one was kind of lucky to be as good as it was because a lot of it was the result of um improvisation on the set um and i it feels like the to me that iron man 2 had the same feeling but it just wasn't it like they just weren't able to get that lightning in the bottle um, and i think they hadn't quite figured out how to world build and build towards bigger Avenger stuff while also making the movie they were making. Right. Like the movie at about the midway point, Nick Fury shows up and it, it becomes a completely different movie than it was for the last hour. Yeah. But we get, we get some great stuff. We get, uh, that Monaco 
sequence, the fight with Whiplash on the racetrack is great. Uh, Iron Man and War Machine taking apart the drones at the end is great. We get our introduction of uh, Don Cheadle as Rhodey replacing Terrence Howard from the first film. I don't know how you feel about this recasting. It's it's weird to try and think about Terrence Howard continuing past the first one and like picturing Terrence Howard in Civil War is weird. To yeah. Me. Um, um, I so here's the thing that I really uh, one I definitely think Don Cheadle is a a better choice for Rhodey. His energy um, just feels like it fits with that whole ensemble better to yeah, me. Yeah, he seems like he'd actually be friends with Tony Stark. And I don't mean I don't mean to throw shade at Terrence Howard at all. Like I think Terrence Howard's a pretty dang strong actor. I right. just yeah, I feel like I feel like Don Cheadle just feels like he fits with everybody more. I think I think Terrence Howard fits great in the first Iron Man. Yeah. But throw him in a room with Thor and Captain America and the Hulk and I don't know Hawkeye I guess and I don't know that I feel any version of it I can picture feels so weird also I think it makes up for in the Fresh Prince they let me let's do it let's do it in the Fresh Prince um they replaced Aunt Viv with a light more light-skinned com- more complacent actress right um, what pause what do you mean more complacent more complacent in that, like, the the initial Aunt Viv had a lot of, like, fire to her. She had a lot of, like... Do you mean the she character would, or the, the, the actress? I mean, both. And do you mean in her performance or, like, on the set? Um, I don't know about her on set. Okay, I only so just, know about, it's just like, about, like, the, the character. Okay, so it's yes. about the level of performance, not about, like, she was really fiery and tough to work with or whatever. Mm, okay, no. so you, that's not what you're talking about. Yeah, got yeah. it, got it, got it. Um, and then later, they're like, all right, we're going to replace her with a, a light-skinned Aunt Viv who isn't as, like, uh, she doesn't give as much guff, and she's kind of just, like, she becomes more of, like, a background character at that point. Um, which I feel they did the opposite in the MCU in that like Terrence Howard definitely felt like a more like I, I want to say he felt a little more safe um, and they replaced him with a darker skin brother uh, who uh, was is able to give as much as Tony is able to give as well like so it's it's a shit-giving relationship that, like, I think that they ratcheted up. That's actually a really good way to put it, and I hadn't quite considered it through that prism before. But yes, it really does feel like, like, uh, I like Terrence Howard's Rhodey fine, but he always feels so exasperated by Tony. Right. Whereas I feel like even when Cheadle's Rhodey gets real, as he does in Iron Man 2, he gets real fed up with Tony's bullshit at multiple points. Mm-hmm he really does. Like, I feel like he gives as good as he takes. Yeah. And, and that's not necessarily about Howard, the actor that has a lot to do as well with, with the script and what material he's given to play. Right. But yes, I still, I, I just picture, I picture Terrence Howard sighing his way through Avengers movies. (laughs) So I think at this point, since we are starting to get into, um, we're starting to get into the movies that directly deal with, the Infinity Stones. Um, 
I think that those will be our main focus going forward until we get to Infinity War, just so we can kind of speed through all the ancillary stuff. Yes. Um, um, but then also to Iron Man 2, uh, first appearance of Scarlett Johansson as Natasha Romanoff, the Black Widow. She gets a really fun fight sequence near the end of the movie, but for the most part, I feel like her first appearance is a little bit of a wash. Yeah. And weirdly male gazy compared to every subsequent appearance of her character. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, also, shout out to Gwyneth Paltrow as Pepper Potts, and that's all I got. Hooray! She makes she's she's so good. No, I will um, say, I will say. Look, I actually really do. I I I like what Gwyneth Paltrow brings to these movies. I like what I like her Pepper a lot, and I like what her Pepper does for Tony. I know, I know. Stop laughing. <laughs> it sounds weird. You know what I mean. Get off my jazz. Uh, hey, no one's on your jazz, bro. Uh, but, um, but okay, so yes. Um, yeah, so we get our first uh, Infinity Stone in Captain America, the first Avenger. Yes, um, I feel like you also, you, you have to acknowledge Thor. Can't just leap over Thor wholesale, bro. Um, Thor happened. I will is say, that, I think I think Thor is a much better movie than it gets credit for. I'm not saying it's a bad movie. I'm just I like, do think the problems with it are pretty big but i think far more of it works than it gets credit for um yes i mean i like i like a lot of thor i'm not i'm not pretending like it's a perfect movie a but lot of like, the earth stuff is just doesn't work right doesn't i work. mean it it feels to me like a movie that um you can tell where they decided to save money um and that's it's like and that's its biggest flaw i think is that like in the planning, they're like, well, we have to have this really big, beautiful uh, Asgardian uh, set piece, which is going to cost us a lot of money. So what we'll do to save money is we're going to set a lot of it in this really small town. We're going to build it ourselves so we don't have to do any of the clearances. We don't have to do uh, any of the like extra stuff. Like We just really have to like make this small town um work for us and essentially we can save a bunch of money by doing like a fish out of water story and then uh the rest of it we get that means we can devote a bunch of money to asgard stuff so i don't buy that it was a budget thing i think it was a combination of two factors i think one was no, they they very understandably had absolutely no fucking clue how anybody was going to respond to a Thor movie. Right. Like it's bi it's big, it's weird, it's like uh, alien Shakespeare stuff. It's it's a lot of like doths and vows and fighting frost giants and stuff like that. It feels way more to me like they were hedging a little bit. It's like, okay, this is all like big and crazy and weird. And like we hadn't made a Guardians of the Galaxy yet. So we didn't know that people would get on board with big, crazy, weird cosmic stuff. Yeah. It felt like hedging. It felt like let's set at least 50% of this on Earth. So it's a little bit more normal for the normie folk. Yeah. Um, combined with on the commentary for Thor on the Blu-ray, Kenneth Branagh was talking about how... Uh, he wanted the town to feel like almost as if uh, Asgard was almost, it was like a big island in space. And eventually in these movies, they just start calling Asgard a planet. Yeah. But it, it looks like a big island in space, like a sea of stars. Right. And, and Brano was saying he wanted the little town to feel very similar, like it was another, it was its own little island in a sea of desert. Yeah. Which is a really interesting poetic idea. But the byproduct of that is that it never actually feels like we're on Earth to me. Yeah, it feels like we're in a weird little pocket place. The only it the only time the Earth stuff really feels like Earth to me is when they're all trying to get the hammer out of that crater. 
Oh, yeah. The rest of it feels very much like we're so disconnected from the world that, like, yeah, they're all clearly Earth people that know Earth things and do Earth stuff, but it never feels like Thor is actually connected to the rest of the planet at all. Yeah. So it feels weirdly disconnected and inconsequential by extension. Right. And also the Jane Foster character, and this is in no way Natalie Portman's fault, just has never worked for me. I feel like she's she's... It, she's supposed to be this brilliant astrophysicist, and we spend so much more time making her a giggly schoolgirl right. than we do focusing on how brilliant she's supposed to be. And also that that kiss between the two of them at the end is like that. And I think at the Man of Steel, the kiss at the end of Man of Steel are like two of the most tone deaf screen kisses in a big movie that I can remember. Yeah. Um. But again, like those, that's kind of my sum total, the sum total of my issues with Thor. Like Thor, every time I watch it, I'm stunned at how well it holds up. Again, the problems are, you can't really ignore them. They're, they're sizable, but there are far, far fewer of them than most people seem to remember. Yeah. And Thor also gave us our, like the best MCU villain uh, for, I want to say at least half a decade. Oh yeah. yeah. And it's still top three. Yeah. In the um, form of Tom Hiddleston's Loki. Right. Yes. Um, so that, I think, is the best thing to come from the movie overall for the universe. Oh, absolutely. Um, because and they because it was so good that they decided that they would use him again for Avengers. Which is, and th- thank God that worked out, because the original, in the original comics in the 1960s, the Avengers did get together. Their first big antagonist was Loki. Right. Who, who came to Earth because, I don't know, he was mad at Thor about something. I'm sure. Uh, so it's good that that worked out because if you want to make your first Avengers movie and you want to try and mirror the source material as closely as you can, yeah, you want to throw Loki in there as your antagonist. And if you didn't cast a great Loki, you're kind of shit out of luck. Yeah. Thankfully, yes, Tom Hiddleston. Tom Hiddleston became as much of a rock star with that performance as I'd say anybody across these movies with the exception of maybe Downey, who's like their Mickey Mouse. Yeah, which is interesting because he originally auditioned to be Thor. He did audition to be yeah. Thor. You can find if you go to YouTube, it might be on the on the disc as well, but I think you can go to YouTube and you can find you can find clips of him like with long blonde hair mm-hmm. uh uh auditioning for Thor. Yeah, doing hammer stuff. Yeah. Um so I mean I I would say that like yeah, the casting in that movie was pitch perfect for every Every role, I'd say. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Anthony Hopkins is Odin, genius. as a genius piece casting, even though in a couple of these movies, it seems like he's just sleeping. Well, yes. I think that that... To be fair, Odin's very old. Yes. he w- in, in all the movies, he's like, I'm about to go to my sleep. And so he's like really playing that up. You know what I'm saying? I, I will say, though, he does get to, by the time we get to Ragnarok, in at least one scene, he does get to have a tremendous amount of fun. And it, right. It, it's like, for me, I'm like, look, I'll forgive I'll forgive your entire performance in Thor The Dark World because of that one scene. Yeah. Forget, like, Anthony Hopkins needs my forgiveness. I'm sure he's listening to this being like, that motherfucker. Oh, okay. He's cool. Um, but yeah, so, yes. Thor happens. We get Thor Loki. happens. We get um, Loki. Loki at the end of the movie. We're just gonna, we're gonna kind of spoil these movies wantonly. But this came out what seven years ago. You had time. Yes. Uh, so yes, at the end, uh, Loki is revealed to have some uh, not so pure intentions. Uh, Thor wins the day, but loses Loki. Believes Loki to be dead for the first of several times, uh, and Loki flies through space before eventually, as we discover later, bumping into Thanos and setting him on a path that 
that he is still on by the time we arrive at Infinity War. Right. So, um, but between that and uh, Avengers 1, we have Captain America, First Avenger, yep. which is a lot of people's favorite f- uh, Phase 1 movie. And it, a lot of people also don't love it that much. A lot of people that I talk to even now are like, yeah, it's okay. I thought it was kind of boring. And I, I, the first time I saw it, I liked it. But it wasn't until going back and and revisiting it a couple of times that it really started to grow on me. And now, yeah, I think it actually might be my favorite Phase One movie. It does it does help a great deal knowing the greater significance of characters like Peggy Carter and Bucky Barnes. Right. Um, but I think in itself, it's an incredibly strong movie. You get this incredible uh, Joe Johnston directing uh, the guy who made uh, the Rocketeer, among other things. Yeah. Um, uh, this really excellent period kind of fun pulpy piece of uh, almost like it, it feels very almost Indiana Jonesy type mm-hmm. entertainment um and and then of course we get Chris Evans as Captain America who I mean look okay it's like it's like everybody everybody who's really upset understandably so about the way Superman has been handled in recent motion pictures you need look no further than the Marvel Cinematic Universe because Chris Evans, Captain America, like that's your, that's Superman too. Like that's like every, every quality you want to see in an on-screen Superman he embodies. But more than that, I would argue pretty strongly, and I I don't think I'm alone in, in feeling this way, best version of Captain America that there has ever been, including every piece of the source material. Interesting. Yes, I I believe this pretty strongly. I think I think Evans Captain America embodies everything that's great about Captain America on the page while also making him so much more human and relatable and empathetic than that Captain America ever was or ever could be. Yeah. And it's interesting because Chris Evans having played like very I would say like snarky light Ryan Evan, Ryan Reynolds esque characters the, up yeah, until this. He was very he was a, a Human Torch in the yeah. first couple of Fantastic Four movies, right? And he was the main character in Not Another Teen Movie. Yes, that's, and I so, think like, first thing a lot of people saw him in. I think this is the first time I ever saw him. Yeah, and so like having him go from those kind of things where he was just like a handsome uh, dude who could make jokes and going to this really earnest character. Uh, A lot of people had their reservations. It was, I want to say it was like of the level that people had of Batfleck and things of that sort, where people were like, Chris Evans playing Captain America. That's dumb. And then you see him once he's fully fledged. Yeah. Like even, even all the like, tiny Evans stuff when he's uh, basically in a young man's body. Skinny Steve. Yeah. Um, That stuff very, he like pulls it off really well. And he, and he, you, you believe that his, his big face is on that tiny body. And, and you believe all those moments when he's fighting the bullies. Um, I think that like he found a way to, uh, I guess, as you said, make that character really grounded um, and stretch himself as an actor as well. Yes, while also being being the pure beating heart of this entire universe. He manages to be incredibly human and relatable and empathetic while also being incredibly aspirational, the same way that, that Superman is in his best incarnations. Um, I think the most... The most telling sentiment that he expresses uh, about about who he is, Steve Rogers, about who he is, maybe in any of these movies, is in 
first Avenger, and it's when he's talking to Erskine, uh, Stanley Tucci. Yeah. I want to say it's the first conversation that they have where uh, Erskine asks him, why do you want to kill Nazis? And Steve asks him, is this a test? And Erskine goes, yes. And Steve thinks for a second and he goes, I don't want to kill anyone. I just don't like bullies. I don't care where they're from. And that's that's who he is. Like he's he he is the little guy. So he knows the importance of fighting for the little guy. Yeah. And it's not about it's not about glory. It's not about beating the villain. It's it's about it's about fighting bullies, man, like of, of any size and of any shape and making sure that people are protected and feel safe and feel cared for. Um, that's who that guy is. And it's all, it's do, do the right thing. Even when it is the impossible thing to do, you do the right thing because it's the right thing. Yeah. It's, it really, like you could, if you're looking for a moral center to guide you in your life, it sounds silly, but you could do a heck of a lot worse than what would Steve Rogers do? Mm-hmm. Oh, and we, we like, and we also get the, his like, well-known uh adversary which is the red skull so amazing that if it's like of course if you're gonna do a world war ii period captain america movie you gotta make the red skull the villain right which allowed them to really like plant the the hydra seed from the very beginning make that an, an ongoing adversary especially since at by this point we had also already introduced the idea of shield so having this other like evil organization yes like, uh, a, like a counterpoint to like dark shield essentially right or nega shield as it were <laughs> reverse um, shield okay <laughs> um but yeah shield vitar uh <laughs> joke for one person not that nobody gets it no one thinks it's funny uh so uh jesus uh it's also again like more world expansion more universe building we meet uh howard stark tony's father is a young man played by dominic cooper yeah. After seeing, I feel bad. I'm I'm spacing on the actor who was the face of Howard Stark in the first Iron Man, but uh, from Iron Man two on, adult older Tony Stark, Tony Stark, Howard Stark was played by John Slattery, who I think most people know as Roger Sterling from Mad Men, right? Or now as Howard Stark. Um, but yeah, young young Howard Stark, uh, Dominic Cooper, and then of course uh, Peggy Carter proved to be such a popular character that she a little bit late, a few years later, was given her own ABC series for two seasons, which is season one pretty dang great it's yeah. also of all the tv stuff had the most involvement from people on the movie side of things so it does feel more closely tied to the movies than any of the other tv stuff does yeah uh, but we also get we get uh dominic cooper back on that as well which is a bunch of fun i recommend that show we're not going to dive into the tv stuff too much because that would just take so much dang time right uh but i do recommend season one of agent carter uh uh quite quite a bit and then of course uh, i would say maybe the biggest flaw in the movie and it it for me and it really doesn't become noticeable until you get to Winter Soldier, is I, I wish we had spent more time on the relationship between Steve and Bucky because there's a there's a lot that's there, but I feel like I wanted there to just, I wanted it to be a bigger focus than it was. But we also had to do quite a bit in that movie. Yeah, I mean, because the first half is, like, he does he's not captain america until very late into the movie because we spend it a lot of time as like he, he skinny is, he's Steve. like quote unquote captain america because once he once he becomes you know all muscular pretty quickly after spoilers after erskine is killed and they realize they can't make any more of these guys they just start using him as a, a propaganda symbol they call right. him captain america but he's not doing anything heroic he's selling war bonds right each exactly. bond you buy is a bullet in the barrel of your best guy's gun <laughs> 
<laughs> nice. Um, but yeah, and that all that leads us to um, Avengers, where we have our main Avengers team. Um, we have uh, Iron Man, we have Hulk, we have Thor, and Captain America. And then in addition, we have um, Natasha, who, as we mentioned, was was in Incredible or Iron, Iron Man, Man 2. 2. I don't know why I think she was in Incredible Hulk. Doesn't matter. Um, and then we also, in Thor, got the introduction of Hawkeye. Yes. Um, so that that's our full Avengers team at this point, with the addition of S.H.I.E.L.D. being in full uh, working order. Yes, and Nick Fury has essentially been uh, the glue that has been tying these movies together. He pops up in both Iron Man movies. He actually pops up in every one except Incredible Hulk. He pops up in both Iron Man movies, uh, post credit scene on Iron Man and in a bulk of the second half of Iron Man 2, uh, post credit scene on Thor, and then in the final scene of Captain America, where Steve Rogers, after sacrificing himself to save the entire planet, uh, is frozen in ice for just about 70 years, wakes up in the modern era, and that's, of course, when he hooks up with the Avengers. Uh, the Red Skull was trying to get the Tesseract, which is a big, big part of the plot of Avengers. As we come to find out later, it is one of the Infinity Stones. Uh, but the Tesseract ends up lost until it is discovered. It's discovered by Howard Stark in the sea. They fish it out, and I guess they spent 70-some-odd years trying to figure out what to do with this thing. <laughs> um, I mean, they're just like, it has weird energy. It's like, look at this glowing box. Yeah. And then they just left it, like a, they left it in the basement of like Project Pegasus for like 70-some-odd years, get almost 70 years. Just like occasionally they go down there and they like do peyote and they dance around the glowing box. But right. it wasn't until like, I don't know, two, three years before the events of Avengers, they started to go like, maybe we could do something with the peyote box. Mm -hmm. hmm. Well, I mean, I imagine they, because until Selvig, um, start, until Selvig became, his science became well known, his and Natalie Portman's, um, it was basically just a big box of magic. But then their science helped S.H.I.E.L.D. to go, oh, maybe this actually makes sense. Like, yes. maybe there's more to this universe than we can really fathom. And so they, like, brought him in. It does track, right? Because his work with Jane Foster was all about, essentially, it was about portals, basically. Like, the whole Einstein-Rosenbridge thing, uh, it, it's, all about, it's all about portals. It's all about gateways through space and time. Yeah. And that's eventually, like, what they discover they can do with the Tesseract. I mean, they can draw power from it, this weird, like, they can use it to make weapons, essentially, the same way that the Red Skull did. Yeah. But they also, I think, through Selvig's research, that's how they figure out we can use the Tesseract to essentially, uh, potentially open doorways through space and time. Right. Um, so then, as you mentioned, like, Thanos is like, yo, son, why don't you go get the that Tesseract for me? Have one of these Infinity Stones, because you know you need the power of a stone to go get a stone, son. Right. The plan is essentially, right, like, Loki, here, take this scepter. You're going to lead our army of Chitauri. You're going to take the Earth. You're going to take the stone. You give me the stone, and you can have the Earth. Right. Um, which, you know... I feel like up until uh, that scene in, what was it? Was it Guardians 2 or was it um, Avengers 2 where we get the uh, Thanos basically being like, oh, I guess I'll do it myself. That's the, the um, mid credit scene on Age of Ultron. Right. So until we get to that point, he's mostly just sending out a bunch of cronies uh, to do his bidding. Uh, you don't really get a good sense of like, who he is, what he wants. Um, in that like ending credit scene, 
like we get that like oh blah blah is to court death where they're because in in the original comics like he's in love with death he wants yes, to that's, like that's make his motivation. out with death yes essentially um, he wants to prove his worth as a as literally as like a lover to the physical embodiment of death who's embodied as a beautiful woman um right. and he's going to prove his worth by wiping out half of life in existence yeah and so like the that line is just a cute nod to that to where you're like oh shit he's saying that you gotta you go you gotta you could make out with death if you do some stuff with earth people right and once again by the way uh as hard as it was to overstate how exciting it was to see nick fury show up in iron man's house and mention the avengers initiative even harder to overstate how mind exploding it was to see thanos pop up in that mid-credit sequence right and if you don't know the source material you'd be like oh who's the What's this purple person up to? What's this, what is this great man doing up here, <laughs> hanging out, smiling and stuff? Yeah. But if you know the source material, it it was I mean, holy shit! Like it again. You can't you can't overstate how exciting that was. But also, you can't overstate what a big deal the Avengers was and continues to be. You re- you really can't overstate it. That yeah. one, that movie came out and completely transformed the way big studio movies are made and approached for, for better and honestly more frequently worse because everyone wants Marvel success and nobody wants to put in the legwork. They right. just want to ape the model. And that no, it's, it's like everybody wants to be Marvel. Nobody wants to make Iron Man. Right. It's not that Marvel's fault that nobody learned the correct lesson, but you know, most people don't seem to have learned the correct lesson. Yeah. Cause we, from that point on, we got things like, uh, DC trying to speed through their uh, their shared universe. We got uh, the the attempt at the second coming of the monsters universe. Um, That's right, dark, oh, dark universe, and they the, with the with the Tom Cruise mummy, and oh, they yeah. have that dark universe logo up top. It's yeah, like, guys, hold hold your cool your cool your <laughs> horses, cool your horse jets, man. Uh, I mean, it would it. it could have been really interesting but it wasn't um that's fair <laughs> yeah i mean because i think there was also an, an like there were other ones too like wasn't i frankenstein part of that as well no um, but but they they did that i believe dracula untold was meant to be part of it right the i frankenstein wasn't although seems odd because of how similar that felt aesthetically at least marketing wise to to dracula untold yeah but i think maybe dracula untold but then i know they were gonna do a bride of frankenstein with i want to say javier bardem as frankenstein's monster yeah and i think they were maybe talking to angelina jolie about being the bride of frankenstein then an invisible man with johnny depp and then um they were maybe talking about doing a wolf man i forget there was some talk about doing a creature from the black lagoon movie i know um but that's already been done and it's great yeah, now they did a sexy, sexy creature from the Black Lagoon movie, and it won Best Picture. <laughs> we really—that's right. Like, we really don't need a creature from the Black Lagoon remake. No, now because not at all. Because the most interesting version of that is probably nowhere near as interesting as Shape of Water. Yeah. So right, we're talking about we're talking about shared universes, and we're talking about how this really did uh, kickstart that that as a as a goal it kickstarted people driving towards that specific thing as a goal whether or not that was necessarily what they needed to be shooting for in the moment yeah uh but it it 
man, like that movie was such a such a phenomenon. It really was like the, the 21st century blockbuster as we are coming to understand it now really was born at the the moment of that sh- the now super iconic shot where it it goes around all of them uh, when they're kind of back to back facing out at the Chitari and you know they're they're the Avengers assembled truly for the first time and yeah. that moment I don't know how many times you saw this thing in the theater when it came out I saw it I want to say three times and all three times I saw it with a crowd like rapturous reaction from the crowd that I've only I've only ever seen reactions like that a couple of times in a movie theater and there's a there's a reason I get I get so bummed out when when storytellers or aspiring storytellers or filmmakers kind of write this these movies off because uh, in my head I'm going like like I saw the way the audience reacted to that right aren't you at least a little bit curious why it's resonating so intensely with people no you're okay have, have fun have fun writing your thing over there uh but it works so insanely well, and it works so insanely well because you're paying off not just an incredibly well-structured uh, a core narrative in your movie, a meta-narrative in your movie, because the movie is not just about will the Avenger Initiative work in the context of this universe. The movie is also very much about will the concept of a shared universe team-up Avengers movie actually work? The movie is very much also about that. Yeah. So you're paying off both narratives in that moment, but also that moment pays off five movies and four years worth of setup, worth of essentially breath holding, worth of of build up and anticipation and will this experiment pay off? And that moment and that reaction from the crowd indicated solidly, oh good God, yes, this works insanely well. And that moment is the climax of the movie. I'm not the first person to point out that the movie effectively, the story of the movie effectively ends there. And then the movie goes on for another half hour or so, and it's just a big fireworks display of awesome stuff. It's like the movie takes a victory lap for for itself. It's like, oh, wow, we did it great, here's some cool shit, look at us go! And that's the last half hour of the movie, and it doesn't matter because, yeah, the shit is so legitimately awesome, and at that point, they have already stuck the landing so completely. Is it a perfect movie? No. Is, is it a little... I guess you could argue it's a little bit creaky in places, sure, but the fact that uh, Joss Whedon, writer-director, uh, was, was able to so balance all of these personalities, these characters that absolutely shouldn't work, in a scene together. There is no way Thor and Iron Man should work on screen in the same scene. And to be fair, for a while, it was a little challenging to figure out how to properly integrate Thor. But it shouldn't work. And not only does it work, not only do all of these tones blend together so well, all these characters and personalities blend and play off each other so well, not a one of them loses their individual voice. Mm -hmm. That's really, really, really difficult. Uh, and and not for nothing, and this is this is a trend that has continued pretty steadily throughout all these movies. Even when the movies seem to be very plot heavy, it's not really about the plot. It's about the characters. The characters drive the story. The characters are why people continue to show up for these movies. Everything, all of the best of what this universe has continued to be going forward, it was all crystallized in 2012 and the Avengers. And that was also the moment, right? Like, much like the post credit scene on Iron Man was a statement of intent uh, going forward, so too was the mid credit scene on Avengers where you see Thanos for the first time. When mm-hmm. people when people say, well, we've been waiting for Infinity War for 10 years, well, no, it's, a little, it's paying off 10 years of stuff. We haven't actually been waiting for Infinity War since the first Iron Man. We were waiting for Avengers for uh, when we saw the first Iron Man. We've been waiting for Infinity War for, like, 
six years. Right. Which, not for nothing, does that not boggle your brain that the Avengers was only six years ago? That it was only six years ago that this felt like a monumental risk, like the furthest thing from a sure bet that you could imagine? Isn't that weird? It's weird to me. I mean, a little bit. Super weird to me. But (laughs) anyway, uh, it's like, this is it. It's like, that was the moment where it's like, not just is the Marvel Cinematic Universe here, it is not going anywhere like we we did it hooray for us now let's see what else we can do right i mean and from that point you basically got the marvel people coming out uh every d23 or every comic-con telling you what their plan is for the next 20 years because they're like we've we've cemented our place in the sphere of cinema um and now we can just kind of do what we have wanted to do from the very beginning. Yes, and, cl- and cl- at that point too, they they kept working us up to working us up to where we could digest as a mass global audience uh, the equivalent of essentially shaking a comic book onto celluloid. Essentially, it's like you know what I mean. Like we didn't, we weren't getting movies that felt truly like even with Iron Man, with Thor, with Captain America. We didn't get movies that felt truly like they existed in a comic book universe, I feel, until we got to that movie. And they didn't let go of that, because why would they? Right. Um, so once that happened, I feel like it kind of tempered down. Like, we didn't get another movie until, like, 2013? It was the next year. Avengers was their only release in 2012, and I that was the last time uh, they had only one release in a right. year. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, because they started pumping it up. Phase two had all of our main, uh, I guess, the original three uh, we did not, Avengers. Yes, we did not get another Hulk solo movie because the Hulk rights are tied up with Universal. So the Incredible Hulk with Norton was made in partnership with Universal Studios. You have to partner with them to make a Hulk solo movie. But the right. rights are such that you can use Hulk in anyone else's movie in any team-up movie you want to you just cannot make a solo hulk movie without the participation of universal so now they throw him into uh avengers movies and a and a thor movie which not for nothing i think that's the best way to utilize hulk in a movie because hulk is really it's tough to make a solo hulk movie because you're doing a superhero story but it's also kind of a werewolf story right and the thing that you're really there to see which is him turning big and green and smashing stuff is the thing that he's doing his best to actively stave off the entire movie. It, it can get, it can get tough to make it consistently dramatically satisfying. Yeah. I mean, though, I feel like if you're making a a Hulk movie where Banner and the Hulk are friends, Hulk friends, um, or you, or you even do it to where like they've been separated and the, the arc is, realizing that they need one another because like i think that's been done in like the animated show it's been done in, yeah in comic yeah books and in the comic well. yeah i was getting there well and, yeah. I, and i agree with you but i also think i also think we're only now or relatively recently at a place where like big mass audiences would be on board with that sort of thing yeah uh but but also not for nothing even if there was a brilliant story to be told there as they're they're there can be, there can be several, uh, you'd still have to go through Universal, which means we still wouldn't get it. I know. What, I mean, but if if Sony can play ball... The word I've heard is for some reason Universal just doesn't want to. 
Yeah. And maybe it's because they don't feel like they have to. They're like, look, we got we got Fast and Furious. All right. We don't we don't need Marvel money, which everyone needs Marvel money. But yeah. we but it's like we're good. We don't need whereas Sony Sony was was struggling a little bit. Sony kind of needed an assist, I think. Well, only because they they got they got a lot of pride, Sony, and they're like, you know what? We're gonna do our own shared universe. I forgot about their their shared universe. Oh yeah, their attempts to launch like do a Sinister Six, and there was a rumor they were gonna do like a young Aunt May as a spy movie at one point. Ew. Um, Yeah. So I mean, I'm glad that they came to their senses and were like, you know what? We're just gonna let the money flow in without really having to do anything, right? Which and is then like we'll make Venom, right? Uh, yeah, which is gonna be so good. It's definitely not gonna feel like Spawn in the in the early two thousands. What a fascinating definitely thing not. that that exists. Um, but so, but all yeah. Right, all right, so let's... we start with our Sans Hawk, not Hawk, Sans Hulk. Our main Avengers get get sequel movies. We get. Um, Iron Man 3, Thor the Dark World, and Captain America before we even start getting diving into other worlds. Yes, yeah, so uh, we don't have to spend too much time on any of these movies individually because for the most part, they don't build into uh, the season finale of sorts that we just got. Uh, I will say, though, Iron Man 3 gets a lot of flack that I do not think it deserves at all. Iron Man 3 is a movie I adore in large part because, as I mentioned earlier in this conversation... It is top to bottom a Shane Black movie. Right. I assume that Downey used a bit of clout to get Shane Black that gig and to get Shane Black the the room to make it so unabashedly a Shane Black movie. If you're a fan of his oeuvre, he also he's the guy who wrote Lethal Weapon and he wrote The Last Boy Scout and Long Kiss Goodnight. And I believe he wrote Predator. Uh, he uh, Yeah, so he co-wrote and directed it. It's a, it's a blast. It's a Shane Black crime movie that essentially has, it has Iron Man in it. That's yeah. that's the biggest like it's but it's all of his all of his trappings, all of his sensibility, the aesthetic feels very Shane Blacky. A lot of people take issue with the whole Mandarin thing. Okay, I get fine. Uh Mandarin is real tough because uh on the page and I hadn't read when everybody like started like throwing a tantrum over the Mandarin thing. I yeah. hadn't read that many Mandarin stories. So I went, okay, I don't agree that there's anything wrong with this. I thought it was a pretty brilliant bait and switch. But okay, let me go delve into the source material to see what it is that people think is so superior here. And I read a ton of Mandarin stories and dude, I get it so much less now. Oh, really? The Mandarin, I I've, I read several. I mean, when I say several, I read probably five stories that have the Mandarin in it. Like yeah. Five-ish. And the big ones, like I went online, I'm like, best Mandarin stories. And I'm like, okay, let me track these down. Yeah. At best, the Mandarin's still super boring. At worst, the Mandarin is super racist. It's just a super racist, yellow panic caricature. Right. I mean, I'm wondering if the, like, I'm I'm glad that they had decided to kind of steer away from the the real racist-y piece i think my i don't really actually have any i liked the mandarin being uh an actor and having it be this is a spoiler it doesn't matter i hope you watched it you had Um, five years to watch this movie but like i liked that it was just a dude playing both sides of um both sides of war in general um, and not for nothing, dude. Like, and yes, I totally get it. Guy Pierce is very Bond villainy in this movie, which 
I guess your mileage may vary on that, but that doesn't, that element doesn't bother me in the slightest. I'm there for that. But in terms of motivation, people gripe all the time about the villains in these movies. And I'll grant you, there are a number of them, like, like, uh, Malekith and Thor 2 that are not, they're not great. They're not great villains. They're not very layered. They're not very compelling. Their motivations are pretty, pretty abstract and they don't even necessarily always make sense beyond let's do evil stuff. Cause I don't like anybody. Um, I really like Killian's motivation in this movie. His whole his whole plan, he's creating a puppet terrorist and he's got basically spoilers, he's got the vice president in his back pocket as well. His plan is to control supply and demand in the war on terror to essentially yes to make himself rich and powerful, but like that's I'm greed greed and lust for power are about they're two of the most human motivations that exist yeah. I know that they're not always the most original but I love the idea that his way to wealth and power is by controlling supply and demand in the war on terror I think that's interesting right I mean I feel like people who have issue with the Mandarin like anytime I ask like what else could they have done like what is a better way to have conveyed the story or integrated the Mandarin into a Iron Man story. And I don't think that there is, I don't think that there is a good way to have, because like one, we, we, the Mandarin at, in source material has these magical rings and like is, is, and we already have a character who is searching for magical items that do a sordid thing that give him power. And not for nothing. Now you could do the magical rings Mandarin if you could find a not racist way to do it right now, but we were still what we were still a good, we're still the better part of five years. Well, hang on. Iron Man it was 2013. Yeah. We're and still what three, a good three, four years away from them introducing magic into this universe. Yeah. Give or take, give or take. I mean, we, we had the, uh, the concept of like, advanced science which is what uh thor's world runs on right but and, it's not yeah. like it to them it's not magic it looks like magic to us but they make a big point in thor of saying well, no it's just like really fancy science right exactly and so uh they yeah there's no way that they could have integrated it with i mean it i guess maybe if they had decided like we're gonna make this a thanos light that way when we have thanos in the universe they're like they can reference back to it and be like, oh, magical items like the Mandarin had. But like, even then, at that point, you're getting the one dimensional, I'm evil and I have magical powers, Mandarin, as opposed to someone who is using the smarts that he has, which are basically the equivalent to Tony. Um, and he's using that and his own body, which is what Tony is not doing. And so it's, it's this combination of, these things that make him an actual threat as opposed to just a dude who wants to do things. Right. Now, if there's one bummer about the villain arrangement in that movie, it came out more recently. Uh, I think Drew Pierce, who's uh, who co-wrote the movie, was talking about how their original intention was for Maya Hansen, the Rebecca Hall character, to be the main villain puppet master behind everything. Hmm. But at that point, and also in, in the original comic series, Extremis, uh, Aldrich Killian, is there, he's a character in the story, but he's in, what, maybe a panel or two before he kills himself. And in that story, uh, like Maya Hansen is a far more significant character than he is. But at that time, uh, here's some more inside baseball -y stuff. Uh, so now... Uh, Marvel Studios is under, all of Marvel is owned by the Walt Disney Corporation, but there are different branches. There is Marvel Entertainment, and Marvel Entertainment used to encompass uh, 
I believe it was the comics, it was the TV, and it was the movies. At a certain point, Kevin Feige got out from under the Marvel Entertainment umbrella, and now they're under the Walt Disney umbrella, so he essentially gets free reign, and he only has to answer up to the heads of Disney. Whereas before, he had to work in conjunction with Ike Perlmutter, who, uh, well-known, not a good dude. Uh, remember all of the hubbub about where, why are there no Black Widow toys? Yeah. His fault. Ugh. His fault. Yeah. He was the guy. He was the guy who essentially vetoed them making a uh, woman the primary antagonist of this movie. They still talk about how we we wanted to do that and we tried to do that. And they, I don't think they name Perlmutter, but nobody's secretive about where that order came from. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think the movie is pretty great despite that. But yes, that aspect of it is a little bit of a bummer. I cannot hold it against the movie because no one involved in actively making the movie made that decision. Right. That decision was made for them and they, they did the best they could within the parameters they were given. Um, the other thing I'm going to say, and this is a big, big, big part of why I love the movie as much as I do. The post-traumatic stress angle, uh, which, which is now is a such a massive part of Tony's character that it informs almost all of the big decisions he's made in these movies since for better and more often than not for worse. Right. Uh, I don't get to relate to Tony Stark very often. I don't really have anything in common with him. Uh, you have, you both have dark hair. There's that. And we're both white, I guess. Yeah. Uh, we're both. Yeah. So there's that. Uh, we're both also, white and American, but I don't get to, <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like, you don't get to, it's a weird representation is is not is more than just it's another person that looks like me now obviously right like not to make this a totally separate conversation but it's like just because tony stark is a straight white dude doesn't mean that i at any point feel like there's any similarity at all between me and him right you give him post-traumatic stress and all of a sudden i relate to tony stark I relate very directly and very strongly to Tony Stark. And that's, that's kind of powerful. Yeah. Like, it's like, yes, obviously like there's a certain aspect of white boy wish fulfillment to all of these stories to begin with. So you could, yes, you could argue that part of that is being satisfied for me, no matter what, I guess, if you want to argue that. Okay, sure. But But representation doesn't, isn't just like a, a race thing. It's also like, uh, it's also seeing yourself, um, both mentally mentally and physically like i imagine people who i'm not going to speak for people who i don't represent but like um i think that it's beyond just like ah he's black girl he's white and i you know i can see it but like it's also um cuz like to say that it's it's not just to to assume that it that like people uh can only see themselves in able-bodied individuals or people who um, have a clean bill of mental health is super ableist. Like being able to see yourself in these characters, especially like an Iron Man who is like both rich and a genius, but you know, he, he also suffers from, uh, from like PTSD, which is something that many people, uh, suffer from, but don't get to see themselves in. It's only, I feel like it's only recently that it's been something that has been, portrayed in modern media not in like the most negative way right yeah absolutely and there are so i'm so used to seeing mental illness uh, post-traumatic stress especially depicted in in media in ways that are respectfully total bullshit yeah uh, 
And even though, yes, the movie, the movie, at a certain point, we stopped focusing on the post-traumatic stress angle quite as much. Uh, it's still, it's, it's a powerful aspect of the movie and it drives every action of his. And then to watch him try and struggle with that while all of these things, uh, these external factors are, are acting upon him and mm-hmm. exacerbating it and watching him try and manage it. All of the, all of the suits that he builds, right? We see that since the events of the Avengers, he's he's been channeling all this post-traumatic stress into building suit after suit after suit after suit for any possible eventuality. Anything that could possibly happen, I need a safeguard in place for this because what happens the next time there's a threat that is outside of my control and, and my loved ones might get hurt. Yeah. Um, and that, again, continues to inform everything he does. That's why Ultron happens. That's why he signs the Sokovia Accords, etc., etc., etc. Um but so I I love 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 that aspect of it, and it's it really is a to me it's a very different type of movie, but it is I, I truly feel it's as good as the first Iron Man in very a very different way. But I truly believe it is as good. Iron Man two Tony does not really grow at all as a character. Right. Uh, I think there's tremendous growth in the first Iron Man. I think there's tremendous growth in the third Iron Man. I think I think uh, thematically for Tony the journey is essentially about not. He talks. He talks about the suits being a cocoon, essentially, and it's about it's about he was using it as a crutch. He was shielding himself with the suits, and it's about him discovering my my trauma is it's it's a part of me. My trauma doesn't define me, and I am not my I'm not my crutch. Yeah, um, which I think is really powerful, and it really does change who Tony is going forward. He's still Iron Man. He says it at the very end of the movie. He says, "I am Iron Man." One thing you can't take away. I am Iron Man. It's just it means. Something not not even different. It means something more than it did before, right. which I think is really nice. And it doesn't. What I really appreciate, man, is that they don't insinuate that that means his PTSD magically goes away. Yeah, that. I tell you what. Mm, I tell you what, man. There, <laughs> I get I get angry when I see that in movies. Movies that imply that you can just magically cure yourself of post traumatic stress because right. that's not especially movies like I don't know. Sniper, who where you really you really have a responsibility to do better than that, yeah. And it's it's offensive that you don't do better than that. These movies actually do a pretty great job, especially when we get into like Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, one of the best movies about people coping with the fallout of childhood abuse that I've ever seen. Yeah. Um. But yes, I love Iron Man Three a great deal. I get why maybe other people aren't as hot on it as I am, but I. Love it. And one one last thing, and this is this is just a, is a good example to use, but this is something that drives me up a wall whenever I hear it in any context. I have talked to a couple of people about the Mandarin thing and about why it bothers them so much. Yeah. And I'm paraphrasing, but I've heard from a couple people a version of, well, you know, they, they set up the Ten Rings in the first movie, and so they kind of promised us something, and we didn't get what we were promised, and it's like a betrayal. And I can't... That's not okay. Uh, did did uh, Kevin Feige, Shane Black, Drew Pierce, or anybody involved in production borrow money from you? Because <laughs> if the answer is no, they do not owe you shit. None of your favorite creators owe you anything at any point. They don't. You hope that they're listening to the fans to a point, but if fans were responsible for dictating every bit of all of these stories, the stories would all be, they'd be rote, they'd be mundane, they'd be homogenized. They'd be they'd be exactly what people are accusing these movies of being, I think. Right. And they'd be boring. 
bottom line, you're not owed anything by your by the creators who make the stuff that you like. If you love what they make, great. If you don't, okay, well, hopefully you'll like the next thing, but they don't owe you something that is catered to your expectations that is not the... It's, it's, it's a flat-out wrong way to approach storytelling. Right. They don't owe you anything. Stop that, and you'll get a lot more out of the stories that you experience. Well, yeah, and plus... The, this promise, air quotes, um, is just that the main bad guy in the first one was rubbing a ring. It's not like he ever po- like well, they looked at someone. They, they reference the Ten Rings like by name, but they don't reference the Mandarin. And here's the thing, right? Like the comics are the comics. Right. The movies are the movies. Yes. Just because the Mandarin and the Ten Rings, just because it's a, they're one and the same essentially in the comics doesn't mean they have to be slavishly beholden to that not for nothing the best the best movies uh that they've made even the ones based on some of the strongest source material if they were slavishly devoted to the source material they would not work as well as movies you need to occasionally shake things up i think they did it in a really clever way one of the last times i was genuinely surprised in a movie theater was was that reveal again it's not i can't take issue with it not being somebody's jam that's 100% 100% personal taste. What I do take issue with is this nonsense of we were owed something we didn't get. What I do take issue with is people deciding they don't like something and then doing the left brain backwards working logic thing to justify why it's objectively bad instead of going, well, it's just not my taste. Yeah. Which is smarter. <laughs> um, But yeah, and so uh, I don't have a lot to say about Thor in the Dark Speaking World. Speaking of not people's taste. Uh, so here's, so, okay. Thor in the Dark World is, I would say, probably the biggest misstep in their entire oeuvre. Having said that, I think every bit of Thor and Loki stuff in this movie works very well. That's also a pretty small percentage of the movie. Yes, that is true. Like, I think the the big issue and the thing that most people take issue with is that uh, as, I think, as we've mentioned, Malekith uh, is a little generic and boring. Like he's just a dude who's like, "I want that Aether," and now oh, Aether, the ether, whatever. By, and the Aether, by the way, is the third of the Infinity Stones that we're introduced to in this universe. The first being the Tesseract, which is the Space Stone. The second being in Loki's scepter, which is the Mind Stone. Right. And the Aether is the Reality Stone, and for reasons that are never made clear by anybody in any of these movies at any point. While the other stones are stones, the ether is liquid. Um, for some reason, it can be liquid or solid. It's like a it's like a starburst. Um, I guess, you know what you know what though. But, okay, it's the reality stone, right? So I get starburst. So I guess I uh, I guess I buy that it can change its form the way it changes the form of. Yeah, sure. Why yeah. not? It's all pretend is the answer to this question. Yeah. I mean, it's also the first time we get in universe the word infinity stone. Yes. In the in the post credit scene uh, or the mid credit scene, rather, we see, uh, oh, God, Volstag and Sif arriving on nowhere. And they hand that infinity stone over to Benicio del Toro as the collector, Tanalir Tavan, who we had not seen in this universe up until this point he returns in guardians of the galaxy where he has a, a a proper though brief role that like i i knew and i think most of us who like followed these movies followed the news casting announcements at this point we knew there was a guardians of the galaxy movie coming and we knew that benicio del toro was going to be playing this character in it yeah would love to have been 
seated next to somebody that very audibly had no clue who this person was and was trying to piece together like why all of a sudden Space Liberace is in the end credits of Thor. <laughs> um, but yes, first first time the Infinity Stones are referenced by name. And there's not, in, at least in terms of this conversation, not too much else to really say about Thor the Dark World. A lot of it doesn't really work. Malekith, you're right, doesn't have much, too much of an identity. His motivation, it makes enough sense where it's like the Asgardians defeated them eons ago and they want to use the ether to return the universe to the way it was before when they ran everything, which basically means like eternal darkness everywhere. Okay, right. I can more or less track that, but the dude is very minimal presence, doesn't have much of a personality, and that makes him a bit of a fitting villain for this movie, which is not really about very much. Yeah, I mean, we do get an introduction to the nine realms overall. Like, we, well, we they, do that. We, we do that in the first movie, though. Do we, we like? Do, like, he do we explains, do it, like a full yeah, overview? Yeah, he, he explains the the world tree. Explains Yggdrasil to Jane at one point. Got it. Um, well, then I guess it doesn't matter. I was gonna say because that comes into play when we get to uh, Doctor Strange down the line. But like, so we get a more in depth view of we, we the nine it, realms. We, we hit it a little bit more, yeah, and we talk about the convergence and Heimdall gets a little more to do and uh and all and all that's you know, it's fun. There's there is some stuff in it that is fun. Yeah. And oh, we lose Rene Russo. And yeah, Thor's mom gets killed by a dark elf, which seems totally perfunctory because again the movie doesn't feel like it's really about much. Um but yeah. But that but you mentioned Guardians and uh not to skip over uh, Winter Soldier, which which like, there's not a whole. Look, here's here's what we can say about Winter Soldier in relation to I guess the rest of this. The Winter Soldier was the movie. Okay, so Captain America: The Winter Soldier, uh, widely regarded as as Marvel's maybe their first masterpiece as such, uh, written by Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, who also wrote the first Captain America, and they've also I think they've been quietly taking a look at almost all if not all of the scripts for these movies that have come down the pipeline since uh directed by joe and anthony russo who came up through television did episodes of arrested development did Mm -hmm. episodes of community uh and the russos of course would go on to direct captain america civil war and now avengers infinity war and avengers 4 uh phenomenal movie uh very very much in the vein of 70s uh you know paranoid conspiracy thrillers like say three days of the condor yeah Uh, Dope movie. It, it transforms the landscape of the universe. S.H.I.E.L.D. falls in that one. You get Robert Redford as the villain, which is dope. Um, it's excellent, and we get a lot of character introductions. We get, you know, Black Widow comes back. We meet the Falcon. There's a lot of cool Nick Fury stuff. Uh, we we get re—everybody knows now that Bucky's the Winter Soldier. I don't think anybody doesn't know that. If you didn't know that, sorry. Uh, but I think everybody knows now. Every, yes, everyone knows at least by think, now. I think everybody yeah. knows. Uh, um, um, and we get we get him back, which is great. It's, it's a fantastic— movie uh and it it does it does so much to further captain america's story because he is now we're now seeing him beginning to we see the start in phase two of of cap and tony's perspectives essentially flipping yeah uh whereas captain america was very much the fall in line chain of command good soldier follow orders do your job don't question authority and Tony was very much the like, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm Iron Man. I'm the suit. I'm gonna handle world peace myself. You guys can kiss my ass. I'm not authority. What authority? Get out of here. All of that shit. Yeah. Uh, no oversight. Minimal responsibility. 
you start to see their perspective shift after after New York and certainly after the events of Winter Soldier. Tony, largely because of his post-traumatic stress, is now being driven towards tighter and tighter control, more oversight, more supervision, greater responsibility. And Captain America, after we discover that uh, Hydra has been growing inside S.H.I.E.L.D. the entire time, you have to start becoming incredibly distrustful of authority at a certain point. You have to start wondering whose orders you're following, why you're following them, what is the agenda here, et cetera, et cetera. So all of that stuff is really interesting. We could talk for, we'd do a whole show just on Winter Soldier, Yeah, but we got a lot of movies to cover. But yes, Winter Soldier, I don't, I don't got to sing its praises. I think if you, if you've seen it, you know, it's, it's dope. And some of the best, still some of the best action that's been in any of these movies as far as hand-to-hand combat, mm-hmm. truly, truly excellent stuff. Yeah, um, I I think that as again we're not gonna dive too far into the TV stuff, but like I think that it really um, one may allowed the Agents of Shield show to become a better version of itself. But beyond that, like it really paid off a lot of the uh, stuff that they had laid the groundwork for in in the original Captain America. So like it stands alone in and of itself, like a lot of the movies feel like they are beholden to the wider MCU. Whereas like, I feel like winter soldier really stands alone as its own movie. Um, and it, it, like there are elements of it that are part of the larger universe, but like it is very much a, a captain America movie that really, uh, takes the core of what you love about captain America and the people around him and says like, all right, if that, then what? And it allows you to, yeah, make that focus shift or at least the perspective shift, but also allows you to enjoy them building the world that he is living in now compared to the world that he was in before. Absolutely. And it's like, right. I love this idea that we we really start tracking in Avengers and we're really still tracking who is Steve Rogers, who is Captain America in the world as it exists today. How do you continue to be the like good boy soldier, the boy scout, the this unwavering symbol of righteousness and good who always does the right thing? Right. How how do you maintain that in this world or a world that is at least similar to this one? Yeah, and it's as you were saying about the about Steve and Tony kind of switching perspectives. You you also get that with their external personas in that like as tony is realizing he is iron man steve is like i don't think i am captain america like or i at am least steve. or at least i don't think i think it means something different than it was intended to maybe or that it has meant in the past yeah um so that's i think yeah that's the best thing to have come out of uh winter soldier with the exception or not with the exception but with the addition of the seed that they plant for that is paid off in um civil war yes um and and two something else that that continues to be a big factor in in steve's character and motivating him going forward we get that devastating scene with peggy where he goes and visits peggy who's still alive but she wasn't frozen for 70 years. She lived a life and she aged. And I love that Peggy Carter did get to live a whole life. Yeah. I, I do love that. But that scene is devastating because he's still Steve from 70 years ago. He's not, he's had experiences. His perspective is changing, but he hasn't aged. He's still, 
he's still Steve and she's Peggy and she's lived and she's aged and her mind is going. Um, but a big, big part of what motivates him coming out of Winter Soldier and especially going into Civil War is Peggy was the last thing that connected him to his old life. Yeah. Very last thing. As far as he knew, Bucky was gone. He lost Bucky during the war. Bucky was dead. And everyone else he knew is gone. Peggy was all that he had left, other than that he could go to the Smithsonian exhibit, you know what I mean? But, like, Peggy was the only thing left from the world he knew. And then he discovers that Bucky is still alive. Right. And, yeah, and then, you know, Civil War plays out the way it plays out in large part because, but yeah, Bucky's his friend. Yeah, Bucky's his best friend. But more than just Bucky being his best friend, Bucky is the only thing that connects him to to that world, to who yeah. he was, to the world that he comes from, to the person that he he was before becoming trapped in ice for seventy years. Yeah, it's it's yeah, there's a lot of it's a powerful motivator, I will say, a little bit. Um, but uh, going back, talking about Guardians, yes, um, Guardians of the Galaxy, which which also it now seems so silly, but was was perceived as a pretty substantial risk as well and and to be fair yeah like you look at it and you look at how little there was like it now yes it takes certain cues from i mean you know other big stuff you know star wars it takes certain cues from other right. pieces of popular culture but this specific mash of tones and ideas and and humor and the music and all of it big weird it's the it's the it's the talking space raccoon and tree person movie yeah you know what i mean with right. with like a big a soundtrack of like banging 70s pop songs and it's not like the guardians were like top tier everyone knows who the guardians are oh, well, not for they nothing were like third tier oh no, no no you're being kind they were like ninth tenth tier like comic right. book fans had no clue who, not all comic book fans certainly but plenty of comic book fans had no clue who the guardians of the galaxy were and not for nothing this version of the Guardians of the Galaxy didn't exist until, relatively speaking, about a minute before this movie came out. Right. So we're not create. We're definitely not creating characters whole cloth for the movie, but we are. These versions of the characters, even if even if we're talking about the lineup of Peter Quill, Star Lord, Drax, Gamora, Rocket, and Groot, we are talking about in the movie versions of the characters that are still not wholly removed, but definitely a couple steps off from. The versions that exist in the comics, I think for the better. Yeah. But so you, it's hard to, you can't really point at the source material and go like, yeah, they did a great job adapting that source material because like that was never really fully the intention. Elements of the source material, absolutely. Even more so once we get into volume two. But uh, definitely, definitely its own animal. Both, yeah. both in terms of the movies that came before it and also the source material that came before it. Yeah, and this was instrumental in setting up the cosmic universe um because this was our first real foray beyond like everything centering around earth um and beyond that i think that at this point we had marvel had been making movies for what um like six years uh, i this can't do 20, math guardians was 2014 was two, yeah 2014 2014 so yeah, at that point six been years going for yeah six years so and and between then there have been other like hero type things. So this was when when we had started getting into the idea of like quote unquote superhero fatigue. And so this was like a really refreshing thing for a lot of people who have been following the MCU and felt like it had fallen to a pretty standard formula, another air quotes. And so like this was something new for 
those people. I guess I guess we need to because you brought them up. I guess I got to hit a couple of those points really really quickly. So uh, superhero fatigue. Uh, I, I I guess I accept that this is a phenomenon that can occur on an individual basis, but the notion of superhero fatigue as a cultural phenomenon is very self-evidently bullshit, as, as evidenced by the fact that these things keep making billions of dollars. Clearly, people aren't tired of them. That's a weird thing to assert. Uh, you personally might be, and okay, totally, I respect that, but to assert that this is happening on a cultural level seems uh, empirically nonsensical. A, the other thing is you are, and I, I get you're doing the air quotes thing, so I know you're like, uh, what devil's advocating, as it were. But this right. idea of all of these movies being the same or feeling the same, I truly believe you cannot feel that way unless you don't watch them. Which, which, like, okay, like again, they may not be your thing. If you don't like them, you don't like them. But to suggest that they are all homogenized, to suggest, yes, there is a lighthouse style for sure, and yes, they are movies. They are big mass movies, so there are going to be certain story beats that are going to be foregone conclusions before you sit down. If that's a big like sticking point for you, I have bad news about most of the movies you will ever see as long as you're alive. But the notion that they all feel exactly the same as each other is so beyond preposterous to me that I don't quite know how to begin to address it other than to reiterate that I find it absolutely preposterous. I mean, I, I, I think that like I get the, I get the notion in that, like, especially if you are not a big like comic book fan or like, you're not, you're, you're, you're basically came into this uh into this world fresh like your first movie was iron man right not your first movie in general like but like you your first in a box. hero movie sure or maybe i mean maybe you were just like i saw blade i saw daredevil and that was it and by daredevil i mean the ben affleck daredevil um not the great netflix series um but like so I imagine with these movies coming out at least once a year of some of them, like a few of them a year, like feeling overwhelmed with that idea that like you, you have to keep track of all these different things. And you, you we did get a lot of origin stories for over the course of like three or four years. It was like, a few origin stories. Yeah. And, when and origin like, stories tend to be pretty much the same across all genres like that's not a superhero thing that's an origin story thing right well i'm just saying like f from the perspective of someone trying to get into the genre right. and it was becoming and also i think that it was in the midst of a a big cultural shift where like a lot of people like if you were watching a lot of superhero stuff it was because you were a, a fan of that thing and then nerd culture essentially started becoming more mainstream mm -hmm. and so you just get it in your face a lot more whereas like before you had to actively seek it out and so like at this point you know captain america is selling you wheaties and shit and but so like you're you're watching tv and that's kind of all you're seeing because they are the big summer blockbusters right no i'm i'm with you on all that and i i totally get that on the surface it might all look the same. I totally right. get it. Like if, if you're just seeing the trailers, I totally get that. It's like, Oh, another one of these, this looks just like all the other ones of these. Right. I get it. That's my point though. If you actually watch them, you can't come away making that argument in good faith. Right. If you don't watch them, then yes, I, I totally see how it may appear that way. 
Uh, but no, if you watch them, you actually can't make that argument in good faith. Yeah. Like if you tell, if I sit you down and I, I say, okay, here's what you're going to do for me. If you got the time, you're going to watch, you're going to watch winter soldier. You're going to watch Ant-Man. You're going to watch, uh, Ragnarok and you're going to watch black Panther. If you watch all four of those movies and you come back to me and you say, honestly, all four of those felt the same to me. I'm not joking at all. You're, you're looking at me. I'm not smiling. I I would say we need to get you to a doctor because like you're something's wrong with the way that you're receiving and processing information. Right. Um, I mean, I don't know. They all have like people in them and they all have beginning, middle and ends. Um, like they're all they're all movies the- with super powered people and CG for sure. Like some of the very, very surface level stuff is similar. Yes. Yeah. But um, also not. That, like, I'm sorry, Winter Soldier and Ragnarok do not look like each other. Like, aesthetically, they really don't. I think if I had enough time, I could make a... I could. I think I could do it. Um, yeah, but if you had enough time, it, you could go through any movies and say, well, look at the framing of this shot. Look at this two-shot. There's a two-shot in this movie, too. Huh. Um, QED. Yep. It, it is self. Um, but Guardians... Yeah, so let's go on, um, going back. Guardians uh, 1 is the first time that we get uh, the Power Stone, but it is at this point, if you're keeping track, our fourth stone. Fourth stone. Fourth stone. Um, And we also get introduced to Thanos as a person. Yeah. As opposed to just like a smiling face. And so he has a few scenes with the main bad guy of... Uh, Guardians, which was Ronan the Accuser, um, and you you get a sense of how much people fear him and how menacing he could be. But for the most part, he's just a, a purple dude in a chair. Yeah, he. We don't. Thanos feels a bit shoehorned into the first Guardians. It felt very much like we need this scene with him floating there in the chair so that this guy just has a presence in one of these movies. Right. Um, And you have to, it makes sense to put him in a Guardians movie because uh, Nebula and Gamora, both daughters of Thanos, and especially in volume two where Thanos does not actually make an appearance himself, we really start to delve into what being raised by this dude was like. Yeah. Uh, We just know that he's a big scary dude in a chair who sends people to do his bidding, and if you cross him, he'll, like, bathe the starways in your blood and, and stuff. Yeah. Um, but yes, we see him, and uh, uh, he's he's portrayed in Guardians of the Galaxy for the first time by Josh Brolin, who will continue to be Thanos uh, so far forever. Yeah, pretty much. It's, it's the only uh, role he'll get to play from now on. I, well, he's Cable, too. <laughs> Just Thanos and Cable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, C- Cable and Thanos. And once the deal goes through uh, with Fox and Disney, he's going to play Cablos. It's going to be Cable, but he's big and purple. Right. I'd like to imagine that uh, Thanos is just a big mech suit for Cable. He's just inside. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, his back will open up and Cable will pop out and be like, ha ha, now I got to go do some time traveling. Um, and instead of, like, there's like a the time stone in his eye and that's why he has the big glowy eye see you, you, we're putting it all together all right yeah all right. yeah it works all right. it works totally but all that leads to uh avengers 2 yes um but so we 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 establish a a, a new team of characters and i i love i love misfits forming chosen families stories yeah uh, but also 
these these characters are so distinct and they're so great and all, also too it's a hilarious movie it's a hilarious movie but there's not i don't know if there's a single joke in it uh all of the really funny moments come from genuine like honest character interactions mm-hmm. it just comes from all of these people with their distinct personalities uh bumping up against other people's personalities. Um, There's that scene towards the end of the movie where they're on the Ravager ship. It's right before Cherry Bomb kicks in. It's the bunch of jackasses standing in a circle. That scene. Yeah. Most of the lines in that scene while they're having a conversation are pretty funny and none of them are jokes. 100% of those lines, it's every one of them is rooted in the the character who's speaking's relationship to the character they're speaking to. Right. And every one of them has a specific relationship to every other one of them in that movie. They don't lampshade any of them, really, with the exception of, like, the romantic tension between Quill and Gamora. Yeah. They don't really lampshade any of it. Um, but it's all there. It's all there in moments and interactions, many of which are very, very funny. But none of them are based in jokes to make jokes. It's all based in character. Yeah. That's really hard. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy gets a lot of love, and it deserves every bit of it. I feel, though, it still doesn't get quite enough credit James Gunn and uh, co-writer Nicole Perlman I feel like they still don't get quite enough credit for how hard it is to to do that mm-hmm. uh, but yes uh, Guardians of the Galaxies felt still very much like its own it, it was uh, it's off in space somewhere and continues to just be off in space relatively separate from the rest of this universe until like a second ago right um, but we do get also we get Howard the Duck in the Marvel Cinematic Universe uh in a <laughs> yeah. little fun post credits appearance. Right. And it's crazy that he's like getting his own movie soon. That's dude, is, is this a time travel joke? Yeah. There we go. Saved it. Hell yeah. Okay. So um, yes, Avengers but, Age of Ultron comes after that. Yeah. Um and this is where we get it, this one I feel is suffers a little bit from the sophomore slump um and it, it it feels a little uh tonally all over the place um but we do get more information on the infinity stones we meet vision um, we meet we meet and make vision and also the maximovs including uh, scarlet witch yeah they get their powers because of the mind stone yes uh, uh baron strucker who who's essentially the leader of one of the last remaining Hydra factions has been doing human experimentation with the Mind Stone, which was lost after the Battle of New York. Whoops. Uh, so Hydra has been messing with people and they've essentially created uh, two two powered people, the Maximoff twins. They're the only ones who survived the experiments. And yeah. so uh, Pietro Maximoff is now Quicksilver. He's super fast. And Wanda is now the Scarlet Witch and she's uh, super weird. Yeah. And so uh, we get a lot of that... Uh what you were talking about with Tony Stark, where he was, uh, he basically made Ultron um, by tinkering with this, uh, this scepter slash the Mind Stone because he wanted to make a way to uh, essentially protect the world. He it's wanted right, it's peace an extension, extension of that post-traumatic stress. I now have to take responsibility for everything. Right. Um, at, which essentially creates... This monster that like is I don't remember why Ultron decides that he has to destroy the world. I, I feel so like it's pretty much it's pretty much any AI story, right? That that uh, if a computer's smart enough and the computer's mission is create peace, the only thing preventing peace on Earth is people. 
Right. And pretty quickly, if you're doing completely emotionless, cold, logical math, yeah, this equation results in, well, if there's no people, if everything on Earth is just metal and it's me and we exist in perfect harmony, boom, peace in our time. Right. Nailed it. Hell yeah. So that makes a certain amount of sense. And then also, I love, I love that Ultron is a petulant child at the same time. Like he's brilliant, but he's also, he's, he's new. He's relatively new. And he's yeah. like, he's like a kid. He's like a little brat sometimes. Well, yeah, he, he's also like all the worst pieces of Tony, not just Tony, but also banner as well. Like there's yeah. bits of banner in his personality as well. And I think that's part of like the little moments of like rage where Ultron just throws little mini tantrums. I think that's partially banner right um but i love i love the character of ultron i i wish that ultron was felt like more of a presence yeah that to me is the biggest issue with the movie is that it tries to do so many things it tries to do too many things for even a two and a half hour movie you need about five hours to really do everything this movie was trying to do i think yes i i think ultron was maybe not quite as, as let's shorthand it. Let's say, and this is super reductive, but let's say maybe not quite as quote unquote good as it needed to be when it came out because the hype was so uh, delirious right. for it, which again, that's the fault of the hype, not the fault of the movie. I think Ultron is so much better and so much more interesting than it gets credit for. Yeah. I think we're actually seeing it now i'm starting to see like a slew of pieces being written about ultron and with essentially with the sentiment that like guys this movie's a lot better than people seem to think it is um it does not everything works there's so many big ideas and it doesn't unfortunately it's not totally successful in balancing every single one thor has to go on that weird vision quest that that really is has nothing to do with this movie it is only there to set up more infinity war stuff um and I feel like there was a, there had to have been a more elegant way to, to relay some of that information. A couple of the effect shots, and it, some of the CG is phenomenal. There are a couple of effect shots, especially on the Iron Man suit, where things don't seem like they're quite finished, which is not great. Yeah. Um. There, are, don't get me wrong. There are hiccups. There are lines that every time I see it make me cringe. The the uh, Romanov, you and Banner better not be playing hide the zucchini. Makes me cringe super hard every <laughs> time I see the movie. Yes. But I still think it's really interesting. It's dark. I love the idea that just because they became a team doesn't mean they can stand each other. I love the idea that the Avengers think of themselves as monsters. That's really interesting to me. There's a lot of stuff in it that I think really, really works. Yeah. There is so much in it that it ends up feeling a little bit bloated. Like, well, there's a ton of stuff in Infinity War, but it all feels very streamlined to me. Whereas there's a ton of stuff in Ultron and it feels a little bit unwieldy and a little bit bloated. But I still think it's a great deal more interesting than people give it credit for. Yeah. Okay. Also, too, sorry, the the way Whedon uses uh, his depth of field in that movie the way he's got like these shots uh, many of them on on largely practical sets where there you look into the background and there's characters doing business like doing stuff like there's little mini stories going on in the background of a lot of these shots if you're paying attention like just what roadie is doing in the background of a lot of the party stuff like it seems like if you're really paying attention he and maria hill have a bit of a flirty thing going on Mm -hmm. and it's never really the focus of a single shot in this movie but if you watch the two of them it seems like yeah they got a little bit of a thing that it's just happening in the background of shots yeah that's really cool i love the number of references visual references to westerns i love the most obvious one of course being the searcher shot where 
Steve Rogers is standing in the doorway of, uh, of the farmhouse. Um, but also there's a really cool, like a Sergio Leone shot when Tony Stark walks into the barn, but it's also, it feels even more so than the first Avengers movie. It feels like a personal product of Joss Whedon, the writer director. It really does feel like it has his DNA all over it, which means, yes, I think it, it, exemplifies a great many of his strengths and also there are moments where yeah it, it hits on a couple of his weaknesses as well but yeah. but once again for me bottom line i i really like age of ultron i feel like there's a lot to chew on there i feel like uh perfect perfect example anybody who tells you that all of these movies are just empty calories what they're telling you is they're not engaging with these movies they're not really putting any thought into any of these movies again maybe you, if even if you did it's still not going to be your jam but no, if you actually bring something to the movie, there's a lot to to pull from it as well. I think I think there's a ton in Ultron that really works, that is really, really compelling. Doesn't all work like gangbusters, but a much, much better, more interesting piece of, of filmmaking than it gets credit for. Yeah. Um Okay. And then it and but that it break they break the formula basically of the Avengers being the end of the phase because we have one extra one after that. We get a fun, yes, we get a fun little postscript, which is Ant Man. Yeah, which which is a movie that okay, so yes, a lot of people and I I understand completely. So Edgar Wright since since the inception of the Marvel Cinematic Universe was attached to Ant Man. He was still attached to it until shortly before they went into production. And I guess there was a difference of opinion because the Ant Man that Edgar Wright wanted to make, the version that they were going to make back in like oh six when they first announced it. Uh by the time we got to this point in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that was not exactly the version of the movie that they were willing to make. And Edgar Wright didn't want to bend from what he was doing uh and so he after like a decade of being attached to that project he walked away from it or most of a decade of being attached to it he walked away from it which yes gigantic bummer edgar wright is for my money one of the best filmmakers that there is he's made some true every every one of his movies i truly 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 adore would have loved to see what his ant-man looks like it still bums me out people that like hold that against the movie because I feel like Peyton Reed did a phenomenal job with it. I think Ant-Man is not necessarily the most essential movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I definitely don't think it is the best constructed movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think it is very charming. I think it is very cute. I think it is very likable. I think it has a huge heart. And I also think the micro photography is cool as shit. I think they do some really fun really uh inventive uh action stuff with the size changing suits that really really works and i love i love i love paul rudd as scott lang and i love uh michael douglas as hank pym and that relationship is great and i love that even though it sometimes gets a little bit lost among all of the other things the movie is trying to do it's a movie about fathers trying to redeem themselves in the eyes of their daughters or not redeem themselves but be the best version of themselves in the eyes of their daughters and i think that's also really a really cool nice compelling drive yeah um i agree um we are running a little long so i'm gonna cut this one uh off here and there's for... so much there's a lot of these movies you guys oh uh, yeah like we did not we came in today with such such hubris and we were like <laughs> we're gonna get through we're gonna do like a road to infinity war thing and we're gonna knock that out in the first little little segment 
and we flew too close to the sun it's and true. now we fell down and we got to go back to the workshop and build ourselves new sets of wings. <laughs> um, but we got all the way through phase one and phase two. Um, so tomorrow you can join us. We're going to uh, go through phase three, including which is my brain. Why, why are we talking about this shit today, Tari? <laughs> Uh, yes. So we're going to, we're going to talk about phase three, uh, and we're going to, then we're going to basically do a full deep dive into, um, into infinity war. Yes. So that should be really fun. So make sure you tune in. Um, and thanks for hanging out with us for this long. Um, I hope we made your commute a little bit better. Um, you know, all the things to do subscribe so you can get this in your feed every Monday and Tuesday. Um, uh, follow us at Missing Outcast so you know what we're doing. Go on Anchor and leave us some messages. Do all the things. We will see you tomorrow.